Would you take your Bibles with me and open to 1 John chapter 2? We're just going to be considering the first two verses of 1 John 2 this morning. Before we study what God has for us in this text, would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, we come this morning like dry bones in need of your word awakening us. It's so easy for us to let the routine of Sunday morning service just wash over us and zone out. For us to be apathetic as we hear your word preached. We don't want to be that way this morning, Father. So we pray that you would help us. Would you help us to be eager to study your word? Give us ears to hear and eyes to see. That we might not just be hearers of the word, but that, Holy Spirit, you would empower us to be doers of your word. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, I want you to picture a scenario with me. Imagine a newborn baby goes to the doctor's office for its first visit after it comes home from the hospital. The mom and baby are waiting to be seen by the doctor in one of the the rooms, and the mom decides to step out and run a few errands, to get some coffee, to relax. A few minutes after she leaves, the doctor walks in, washes his hands, puts on the exam gloves, and begins talking to the baby. How are you sleeping? How's your oxygen? How's the food been? How are you feeling? Unsurprisingly, the baby doesn't say a thing. It doesn't even really acknowledge the doctor's presence. It just lays there on the exam table. The doctor starts examining the baby, and and the newborn begins crying. The doctor asks, what's wrong, and gets no answer. I realize the scenario is preposterous. You know, that, that would never happen. But it illustrates something that we all realize. There are people who cannot help themselves or give themselves what they truly need. The baby has needs that it can't articulate or even really understand in its newborn state. They need help. In the scenario I described, the mother carries out an important job at that doctor's visit and in subsequent visits. She advocates for her baby. She lets the doctor know what she has observed taking place in her newborn child. Mothers have this uncanny ability to know what their baby needs the most and provide it for them. An unintelligible noise to me means they want their bottle to you. They might look at me with a blank stare, but you see they're hungry. Their crying seems empty to me, but to you, you know they want a comforting toy or blanket. In our text this morning, John shows us that we are in need of an advocate because of our sin. That we are sinners and that we need someone to advocate for us, to help us, to assist us. Last time we were in 1 John, we saw John's concern that the believers he's writing to know the truth about Jesus Christ. 
The truth of the Gospel was something that John and the other apostles had touched. They had seen. They had heard. And in this letter, John reminds true believers of the importance of Jesus' death on the cross. The general reason why John is writing to these believers is so that they would have fellowship with the apostles. They would have fellowship with God. Their joy would be full. And in the first two verses of 1 John 2, John presses deeper into the centrality of Jesus Christ in the true proclamation of the Gospel. Follow along as I read 1 John 2, 1 and 2. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And He Himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the whole world. As we meditate on what John tells us about Jesus in this text, there are two points that we see in this text. First, the problem of sin. The problem of sin. Verse 1 helps us see the care and concern John has for this group of believers. He's not just writing to them as a sterile, scientific, objective person. No, he begins... My little children. He is, he is concerned for them. Not because they are themselves little children. He's not writing to a group of three, four, and five-year-olds. This speaks to the relationship that John has with these believers. It is a close relationship. These next words then are gentle but pointed. They are loving, but they are an exhortation. And it is that humanity, even Christians, have a problem. In these two verses, the problem of sin is unavoidable. John uses the word three times in these verses. Verse 1, you may not sin. And again, if anyone sins. Verse 2, he himself is the propitiation for our sins. We might ask this morning, why is sin a problem? What, what is that, why is that something that John's even dealing with in this text? Sin is in direct opposition to fellowship with God and full joy. It causes separation with God and causes sorrow. It is the exact opposite of what God offers us through fellowship with Him and fellow Christians. Sin and God cannot coexist in the same room. The Bible teaches that our sin is not a small thing. We don't just sin a little bit. In our Scripture memory passage for this last week in Romans 5, Paul emphasized, he emphasizes that our sinning, our violating of God's law is intentional and grievous. In Romans 5, 14 and 15, he describes what we have done to God as sinning, transgression, and trespass. And John's picking up on that as he encourages his audience that you may not sin. But the desire to sin in humans is unavoidable. The best that we might try, sin is present in us. So how should Christians respond? Should we just throw our hands up in the air and give up? Should we just assume that God knows our weakness and be indifferent to sin? Pastorally, John rejects both of these responses in verse 1. 
And he argues that we simply ought to avoid sin. He's writing this letter so that you may not sin. It's quite possible that the false teachers that he is responding to were taking the forgiveness and cleansing that Jesus secured and using that as grounds to encourage the people to sin more. Do you want more of God's grace? Do you want to be cleansed from more of the sin and more of the things that you used to do? Well, God offers to cleanse and forgive, so do whatever you want, knowing that there are many sins could be cleansed. But John argues that a proper understanding of the gospel should motivate us to sin less, not more. If you truly understand what Jesus Christ has done for you in His work on the cross, you should want to sin less, not take advantage of what He's done for you and sin more. Knowing this, we are still stuck with the reality that the desire to sin in humans is unavoidable. Our sin nature is very good at deceiving us, isn't it? At camouflaging our motives and and desires and intentions. John wants us to see our sin nature for what it is. It is not trustworthy. And in chapter 1, he goes to great lengths to demonstrate if we say we walk in darkness and we fellowship with God, we deceive ourselves. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and the truth is not in us. If we try to discern for ourselves, our sin nature deceives us. So what do we do when we sin? I want you to think about what do you do when you sin? Do you excuse it? Do you wipe it under the cosmic rug, as it were? Do you just kind of hope and pray that God understands? John helps us see what to do when we sin. What does it say about us if we claim to have fellowship with God and yet continue with sin? That's a question that we must ask in this text because he's saying, I'm writing to you so that you may not sin. So what happens when we inevitably do sin? What does that Does that call into question that we walk in the light with God? John here is not pointing to a sinlessness that we can achieve with enough effort and self-discipline. He's not saying, okay guys, here's the standard, so do better, try harder, and let's see if we can make it to the top. After all, John says in chapter 1 verse 8 that those who claim to have no sin deceive themselves. Instead, John is orienting us to how we ought to think about our inclination to sin. We ought not to be lulled into a sense of apathy or underestimate the depths of our sinfulness. Instead, we ought to face our sinfulness. And John presents three options for how we can deal with our sin. We can ignore it. And by doing so, we demonstrate we don't have fellowship with God and we should not ignore our sin. We can downplay it. We can say, well, it's really not that bad. I mean, it was just just a small white lie. But in seeking to downplay it, we actually magnify the severity of sin and demonstrate we don't have the truth. So we should not downplay our sin. Instead, we should realize our problem and run to our advocate. We should realize our problem and run to our advocate. And he points to that in the second half of verse 1. If anyone sins... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, 
the righteous. John provides us with the solution to our sin problem. Face the truth about your sin and give it to Jesus. So 1 John 2 presents sin as a problem, but that's not where the emphasis lands in the text. Without a doubt, these verses shine a spotlight on Jesus and His work as our advocate. So the problem of sin is there, yes, but second point that I want us to consider this morning is the provision of an advocate. The provision of an advocate. The problem of sin is real. So is the provision of an advocate. The second half of verse 1 assumes that someone will inevitably sin if anyone sins. And when that happens, John reveals three incredible truths of the Gospel for us to meditate on and consider this morning. When we sin, first incredible truth, we have an advocate before God the Father. Jesus Christ. Let the significance of that statement sink in for a minute. If anyone sins, which is all of us, those who have trusted in Christ have an advocate before the Father. We, wretched sinners saved by grace, have an advocate, someone who seeks the good of the one he's advocating for. And He is advocating for us before the very One that we have offended, God the Father. And this advocate is none other than Jesus Christ, the God-man. Who better to serve as our advocate than Jesus Christ? Oh friends, this, this is such good news. When you sin, you don't have to advocate for yourself. You don't have to fret about what will happen to your relationship with God. You have an advocate that argues and pleads your case before the Father, Jesus Christ. How is He able to do this for us? So we have an advocate before the Father. That's the first incredible truth. Second incredible truth, Jesus is righteous and we are not. Jesus is righteous and we are not. It's significant that of all the perfections of Jesus, John highlights Jesus' righteousness. He doesn't say, Jesus Christ, the loving. Jesus Christ, the kind. Jesus Christ, the merciful. Or any of His other amazing perfections. Why does John choose to highlight Jesus' righteousness? Because a righteous advocate is exactly what we need. Remember how God is described back in chapter 1, verse 5. Look back at 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. God is described this way. This is the message which we have heard from Him and declare to you that God is light. And in Him is no darkness at all. God is light And in Him is no darkness at all. God is righteous. He's holy. He is totally untainted by sin. We are unable to advocate for ourselves because we are not righteous. We we don't even have a standing before Him. We can't even get in the door to advocate for ourselves. But Jesus, He's righteous. 
He meets the qualifications to serve as our advocate. Think about what you would want in someone to serve as an advocate for you, maybe in a legal setting or in some other social setting. What would you want in an advocate? You would want someone who understands your needs. You would want someone who knows you pretty well. You would want someone who cares about your overall well-being and is willing to go to bat for that overall well-being. You would want someone who has standing to advocate for you. You wouldn't want to go downstairs and pick one of the first graders that you know really well and that thinks they understand you and take them with you and ask them to be your advocate. No, you would want someone who has standing to advocate for you. Think about this. Jesus has all of those things. He understands your needs because He is human just like you. He came to earth and lived among humans so that He might understand you. He knows you pretty well. He knows down to the exact number of hairs you have on your head. He cares about your well-being. And He has standing to be able to advocate for you. He's not a stranger to the Father. He is one with the Father. He is able to stand before the Father on our behalf. Christians, this is something that you have as a follower of Christ. This is true of you if you are in Christ. You don't have to secure it on your own. It's a benefit, we might say, of being in Christ. When you trust in Him for salvation, you have an advocate. I have a Costco membership. And you know what that means? That means that I can pull up to the gas station right next to Costco and I can sit in line for 20 minutes or however long I need to sit in line for and I can pull up to the pump and I can put my membership card in the pump and I can fill my car up with gasoline. I get that benefit. I have that benefit because I am a Costco member. Brothers and sisters in Christ, if you have trusted in Christ for salvation, you have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ. But we might ask, what basis is Jesus Christ able to advocate for us? He might be righteous, but like, what has He done that allows Him to stand before God and advocate for us? The third significant truth worth meditating on is Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. And that's in verse 2. He Himself is the propitiation for our sins. This word propitiation is not one that we use much in our culture, but it is so important for us to understand. The goal of propitiation simply is to make someone propitious. To to make someone favorably disposed towards another person or group of people. Which is kind of unhelpful for us as we're trying to think through what John means when he says he himself is the propitiation for our sins. In verse 2, John is arguing that Jesus himself is the basis for propitiating the Father for our sins. So, the Father needs to be made propitious. And Jesus Himself, we're told by John, is the propitiation for our sins. He is the basis for propitiating the Father for our sins. There are two ideas that are wrapped up in this idea of Jesus 
propitiating for our sins. First, in order for God to be made propitious, our sins that offend Him have to be removed. They have to be taken away. They have to be dealt with. They can't just stay with us. Jesus and His death on the cross provides that. When He says it is finished, He has taken our sins. We trust in Him for salvation. He takes those and He removes them from us. John alludes to this when he says that the blood of Jesus back in verse 7 and verse 9 cleanses us from our sin and unrighteousness. The blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. Second, though, the second piece of propitiation is not just the removal of sin, but the wrath of God against our sin must be satisfied. See, friends, God is angry at us for our sin. He's not passive towards our sin. Consider these words that John writes in John 3.36. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. To not have your sins propitiated before God is to be the object of God's wrath. So in order for you to have your sins propitiated for, Jesus has to do something with the Father's wrath towards you. We read in Romans 1, verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. All the way back when God goes before Moses in Exodus 34, here is what is recorded keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty. So just removing your sin doesn't fully take care of the problem. The wrath of God has to be assuaged. So God is justly angry at our sin. And the Bible holds the mercy of God and the wrath of God in harmony with one another. It is God the Father who sends Jesus to die for us. He is not some stingy, curmudgeon person who is, fine, if I have to save them, I will. He is merciful and He is also justly angry at our sin. So what does Jesus do in His death? His death satisfies the wrath of God against sin satisfies the wrath of God. All of God's wrath is put on Jesus. And because of His atoning sacrifice, God is now propitious towards those who have fellowship with Him. If Jesus Christ has cleansed you from your sin, He has taken God's wrath on your behalf and you are able to realize the purpose that John is writing this letter. You can have fellowship that your joy may be full. You don't have to worry about God being angry with you anymore for the transgressions and sins you've committed because Jesus has absorbed that wrath. The sins we have committed are not removed and forgiven. There is no advocacy. He can't be your advocate if He hasn't removed your sin and absorbed the wrath of God. 
But praise be to God that 2 Corinthians 5.21 is true. He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. That is true, brothers and sisters in Christ. But John doesn't limit the scope of Jesus' work. It's not constrained to just these people that John's writing to. He instead goes on to say that Jesus is the propitiation not only for our sins, the sins of those John's writing to, but the sins of the whole world. Why is that significant? In the ancient world, the gods were localized and they had geographically limited jurisdictions. In the mountains, one sought the favor of the mountain gods. On the sea, you would seek the favor of the sea gods. Ancient warfare was raged in the belief that the gods of the opposing nations were fighting as well and the outcome would be determined by whose god was strongest. That's the pagan mentality. That's the prevailing mindset of how people in that day thought of gods. And against that kind of pagan mentality, John asserts that the work of Christ is valid everywhere. For people everywhere. That is, the whole world. The true Gospel of Jesus Christ doesn't know geographic, racial, ethnic, national, or cultural boundaries. It's not limited to a particular region or ethnicity of people. Jesus isn't just an advocate and propitiation for a particular ethnicity or race. His work is for the whole world. That means that there is not a set of people that are outside the reach of Jesus' atoning work if they will acknowledge their sin and repent and believe in the Gospel. John points to this reality in John 1.29 when he records John the Baptist. John the Baptist first sees Jesus and he says, Behold! the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Even in Revelation, John sees this reality in heaven when he writes these words in Revelation 7. After these things, I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice saying, Salvation belongs to our God. Not their God. Our God. Because Jesus is not just the propitiation for our sins only, but also for the whole world. Consider with me then how the truth of these verses applies to us this morning. How does the truth that Jesus is righteous and we are not, how does the truth that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, that He is our advocate before the Father, how does that help us tomorrow when we go to work? How does that help us later this afternoon when we're tempted to sin? Unsaved friend, you need the truth of these verses. You are guilty of having sinned against a holy God. You deserve the just wrath for your disobedience against the King of Kings. That reality is true of you this morning. One preacher describes God's wrath towards you this way. 
He writes, The bow of God's wrath is bent and the arrow made ready on the string. And justice bends the arrow at your heart and strains the bow. And it is nothing but the mere mercy or pleasure of God and that of an angry God without any promise or obligation at all that keeps the arrow one moment from being made drunk with your blood. Maybe you sit here this morning and you think to yourself, I I have years to go. I can do what I want now and I I will reach out to God in the future. Friend, you are not guaranteed tomorrow. And if you have not trusted in Christ as your Savior, you are guilty before Him and He will judge you for your sin. Sinner, I beg you, turn to Christ this morning. Repent of your sin. Trust in Him. Jesus wants to be your advocate. He wants to propitiate for your sins. His righteousness can be applied to you so that you might be one of God's children. That you might have fellowship with Him. What's keeping you from having your sins forgiven? If you've not trusted in Christ, can I encourage you, come talk to me after the service this morning. Talk to someone sitting around you. Ask them how you can be saved this morning that your sins might be forgiven. Brother and sister in Christ, you need the truth of these verses. You need them for your head and you need them for your heart. For your mind. Do you believe the truth of these verses? Do you live in the reality that God doesn't want you to sin? He doesn't send Jesus to die so that you could sin more. Church, we're called to obedience and holiness. Is that something that governs how you think about your sin? God doesn't want you to sin. When you sin... Do you remember that you have an advocate in Jesus Christ? And He stands ready to cleanse you from that sin. He is not reluctant to cleanse you from your sin. He is ready to cleanse you from your sin. Do you really believe that your sin is gone when you confess your sin? Do you really believe that Jesus is advocating for your sin? Do you really believe that He has propitiated your sin? Or do you insist on carrying your sin with you despite Jesus having forgiven you? Maybe you, like Adam, you bear the consequences of your sin in this life. But remember that if you are in Christ, there is no condemnation for forgiven sin. If He is your advocate, then when you confess your sin, your sin is gone. He has propitiated your sin. We not only need to know the truth of these verses in our minds, we need to feel them in our hearts. It's one thing to know it in our mind. It's another thing to practice it and to feel that in our heart. How does the truth of these verses affect your desires and attitudes? Maybe you know that you shouldn't sin, but are you actively fighting against sin? Or have you thrown in the towel? Has your sin lulled you into a sense of apathy to where you don't want to fight for holiness? Your head tells you that you should not sin, but your heart is discouraged because over and over and over again, what do you see as you look back on your day? You see sin. 
Brothers and sisters in Christ, you have an advocate before the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous. When you sin, confess it to Christ. These verses provide assurance that when you do that, your sin is forgiven. As sure as Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, and He is, that's how surely your sins are forgiven. Let your heart be comforted by that reality. That when you sin, you have an advocate with the Father who pleads your case, who is the propitiation for your sins. Resist the temptation to be your own advocate before God. Isn't that easy for us to do? We want to slide into the self-advocacy chair. But Jesus is the only advocate you need. You don't need to advocate for yourself. What What do you need to advocate for that He doesn't advocate for for you? He knows what is best for you. He has your best interest in mind. When you find yourself seeking to earn the favor of God on your own, remember Jesus already earned that for you. You can't achieve something you already have. And if you are in Christ, you have favor with Him. Because Jesus is the propitiation for your sin. Maybe you're inclined to view your life as a checklist that earns favor with God the more check marks you have on the boxes. Maybe you even came in the doors this morning and as you came in the doors, you gave yourself a little spiritual pat on the back. God will accept me this morning because I came to church Sunday. Don't confuse obedience to God with earning favor before God. If Jesus Christ is your advocate, you don't need the checklist. We obey God because of what Jesus did, not to earn what Jesus did. We obey God because of what Jesus did, not to earn what Jesus did. Weary parent, you need this truth as you parent your kids. Remember that Jesus sees, Jesus knows, Jesus is your advocate before the Father as you try and bring your children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. He is your advocate. When you throw your hands up in the air and you don't know how to deal with a certain situation, you have an advocate before the Father. Kids and teens, you need this truth. Jesus is your propitiation, and that's important for you because as you grow older, you know what will happen? You will become more and more aware of your shortcomings and of your sin. And how do you combat the feelings of guilt and shame? When you don't measure up to your own standards or expectations that friends or teachers have. Remember, your standing before God isn't in doubt or compromised. If you've trusted in Christ, you have an advocate before the Father. Senior saints, you need this truth. Maybe you look back on your past and your mind is filled with regret and shame. You look back on a life filled with things that cause you regret. You don't need to atone for past mistakes. Jesus has already done that. He Himself is the propitiation for your sins. Church, these verses apply to us as a body. 
We are responsible to guard this message. That we have an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So when we gather for worship, these verses and others like them in the Bible ought to fuel our passionate worship of our great God. When we sing, all hail the power of Jesus' name, these verses ought to encourage us to sing exuberantly and gladly. We come into the presence of the King of Kings Sunday after Sunday because of the work of our great high priest, Jesus Christ. And that ought to bring you joy. Take time on your way into church before you gather with the people of God to rehearse the gospel to yourself. To remember that you, when you sin, you have an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and He Himself is the propitiation for your sin. If you take time to rehearse that before you come, then when you get here, what happens? There's a bunch of us who are recounting how Jesus has been our advocate. How He is our propitiation. And we have cause for joy and encouragement in building one another up. Church, these verses are why the whole world needs to hear the good news of the Gospel. Jesus is not just the propitiation for the sins of Limerick Chapel. He is the propitiation for the sins of the whole world. How can you get involved in God's mission? Whether it's something as simple as praying for the missionaries that we support, volunteering to serve here at church with the mission, or considering if God would have you go serve Him in missions in another part of the world. These verses ought to energize us as a church to share the gospel with those who have not trusted in Christ. Because He is not just the propitiation for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. Brothers and sisters in Christ, may God give us grace to live in the reality that Jesus is the only advocate any sinner needs. That's the truth these verses teach. Jesus is the only advocate that any sinner needs. Let's pray. Jesus, we praise You this morning that You are such a great Advocate. That in Your death on the cross, You did not partially advocate for us. You don't have more work that needs to be done. You have finished Your work on the cross. Thank You for being the propitiation for our sins. Thank You that even now that You are seated at the right hand of God advocating for us, helping us, assisting us. We do not deserve this. Thank You. Thank You for the grace and the kindness that You have extended to us. Help us to live in the reality that you are the only advocate that we need. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.